The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. If you move into the video realm for just a minute, in the United States of America, there are, in a single month, 12.2 billion videos viewed on YouTube just in the United States of America. 924 million videos watched on Hulu.com. Now, why do I tell you all these statistics? Well, let me add something else to these mind-bending numbers for you. Some of you will be familiar with an organization called the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser, over the last decade, has done a rigorous and very precise study of young people ages 8 through 18. And in that study, they have determined over that 10-year period that by 2009, the average child in the age range of, of ages 8 through 18 spends 7 hours and 38 minutes per day in entertainment media. That is 53 hours per week. Now, if you include in that number, in those calculations, if you include in that the multitasking, if you will, where you are tweeting on Twitter or doing text messaging with your phone and watching television at the same time or speaking on your phone and playing with your iPod, if it's multitasking, according to this study, that it is 11 hours per day that are spent by children ages 8 through 18. Now, why would I make these sorts of introductory comments and statistics? Well, as cultural analysts and sociologists, child psychologists are, are converging in their thinking on this, they are now speaking openly about the quantifiable cognitive and social effects of the digital age. Indeed, this universe of me that is being created by these digital media, by the me, myself, and iPhone generation. But so what? You know, the statistics are just statistics, but are they? I think there's more to this than just implications of meism. Let me build upon this for just a minute. As you think about the convergence at warp speed of the quantity of information that is uploaded, downloaded, and indeed unloaded on the web, the result has been as follows, as we even think about the television media themselves that quality has lost out to quantity. That the substance of information, its truthfulness, its reliability, has been eclipsed by the amount of it. Truth is trumped by being first. Let me expound on it this way. I saw a comment from, I think, a very honest journalist who framed it in, this term, in these terms. Now listen to this pun. He puts it this way. The early word gets the perm. Now what he means by that is that it is the first 
person to make the statement and make it memorably, he is the one or she is the one that makes the permanent impact upon the media. So why is that significant? Well, it's significant for this reason because what has happened with the quantity of information and its instantaneous access, it has created this environment in this world in which the following has happened. That reporters long now not to do the reporting, but to be the ones reported. And why is that so significant? Well, what has happened culturally with this is that truthfulness, and again, I'm speaking in general terms, there are always exceptions to these things, but truthfulness is now hidden behind the greater priority of being the first person to say something and to say it memorably and to be noted as the one who said it. So what has happened to the content? Well, there's distortion, there's exaggeration, there's speculation. It is largely personality-driven. And the psyche of the public has grown in its distrust, in its sense of starving for stability. I think if we just look at the media alone, it is probably accurate to say that our generation, in our culture here in the West, that we have become fully confident that we cannot be fully confident in anything. If I was to speak about the economy, I wouldn't have to speak long before it would hit home. As media moguls whine loudly about the bear markets, many of you have found yourself in the teeth of those grisly markets. Perhaps jobless, perhaps homeless, perhaps hapless, and indeed hopeless. And irrespective of your party preferences or political persuasions, surveys are indicating that there is a mounting and surging mistrust or distrust in the government. I think Dick Gavitt, as many of you, particularly the grayheads in our, in our midst, will know his name as one of the early uh, TV show hosts. I think he put it well recently when he said this about the political rhetoric. And I quote, if I, I think if I hear the words health insurance three more times, I'll have a seizure requiring mine. But you see these changes, this upheaval culturally. How do we address that? Are there answers of stability? Is there a firm foundation? Is there an anchor to change the metaphor for our souls in the midst of the chaos of our culture? And the growing sense of mistrust. One of the ways that many in the psychological world have sought to address these issues has been to point us to being optimistic. One of the best-selling books that some of you will know by Alan McGinnis is The Power of Optimism, 12 Characteristics of Optimists. Let me just list a few of them. Optimists believe they have control over their futures and are not just victims of circumstances. Optimists interrupt their negative trains of thought. Optimists use their imaginations to rehearse success. Optimists are cheerful even when they cannot be happy. Optimists believe they can have almost unlimited capacity for stretching. Well, let me ask you this. Is it merely a matter of our response? Are we down ultimately to the cruel and empty reduction of meaning being only in me? 
Do I have nowhere else to turn than just my attitude? Perhaps the age-old wisdom is right. When in danger or in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. In the history of the church, God's people have found an answer to this question. They have found an anchor for their souls, indeed, in the pages of the Word of God. The church of Jesus Christ has discerned that God's Word is indeed His very self-revelation, as the Scripture itself claims. And since the Reformation period, there has been a reaffirmed trust in the Scripture as the certain Word of God, and theologians and pastors alike have discovered the rich realities of the authority, the clarity, the necessity and sufficiency of the Word of God. The Reformers turned the world upside down, literally, with the fresh discovery of what we might describe as the self-attesting nature of God's Word, that it is true because of its author being God Himself. And in the midst of turmoil over generations, God's people in His church have found an anchor for their souls in His Word. That has indeed been true of the evangelical church as well. In fact, part of what has made us evangelicals, if you will, has been that undeniable, relentless, and unwavering commitment to the Word of God as the Word of God. In the course of the history of the development of this particular doctrine of the Scripture's authority and its nature. The term inerrancy has been a term that has basically summarized what God's people have known to be true about God's Word. It is true because it is God's Word. It is without error. And this is why the framers of that ancient document that perhaps some of you in this room have never even heard of or even read that is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith's first chapter is a statement about the Scripture. Let me read just a short paragraph from that statement. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. You see, the framers of the Westminster Confession of Faith recognize the reason that they can have absolute stability in a world of chaos is because God, the unchanging one, has spoken unchanging and unchangeable words in their changing situation. So we can rest. We can trust. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul puts it, we can live by faith and not by sight. Many of us look at that and say, oh, that's a frightful place to be. Not if your faith is in the Word of God. There is no greater clarity to be had if God's Word is indeed God's Word. You see, the evangelical church has believed that. But now that is changing. Many in the church and in the scholarly world have changed their minds, being persuaded by outside influences that maybe God's Word 
cannot be trusted. John Curry, as he introduced the evening, made mention of the founding of Westminster Theological Seminary back in 1929. And the founder of Westminster Seminary is a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. Machen was not only a scholar extraordinaire, he was a man who had great courage and great conviction, was willing to lose it all in order to establish a seminary that would be true to the doctrine of Scripture as wholly reliable. And in his perhaps best-known work, the book Christianity and Liberalism, in this early 20th century context in which Machen was writing, he described how liberalism was not another form of Christianity, but was actually another religion altogether. And he goes at great pains to show that a, a religion that bears the name of Christianity but denies the nature of Scripture as truly God's Word, denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily, and other key components of our faith is not worthy of the name Christianity. But the great irony, indeed the great sadness of today, the battles that Machen fought against liberalism, those same sorts of arguments are now being put forth under the umbrella of what we might describe as evangelicalism. In evangelical scholarship, in so many different ways, and in church movements around this country, they are, there are leaders that are retrofitting terms. They are extending the tent pegs, if you will, of evangelicalism into the camp of the enemy. Into those who would deny the very heart of our faith. And they are bludgeoning those distinctives. This is typified, I think, by a recent book most of you would probably not know, but it is a book by a man named Kenton Sparks, God's Word in Human Words. And let me just summarize one of the arguments that Mr. Sparks makes in his book. He concludes that the critical scholarly world, as it has engaged the Scriptures and found them not to be true, must be believed. And he claims that evangelicals are intellectually dishonest if they reject the arguments of this critical scholarship. And so Sparks concludes we must accept the conclusion that the Bible is filled with errors. And he knows that this is unsettling, so this is what he contends. He describes the people in the church as, quote-unquote, the rank-and-file believers. And because the rank-and-file believers cannot be trained in the matters that they need to understand the Bible. They cannot handle the quote-unquote truth of what the scholarly world knows about the Bible. Therefore, the job of the minister who knows that the Bible really can't be trusted, the job of the scholar who knows that the Bible really can't be trusted is actually to hide from the rank-and-file believer what he knows to be true. Why? In order to fortify, to build the faith of the congregation, I, as the leader, am responsible to hide from you the truth of what, if you knew, you wouldn't really have your faith any longer. So the most pastoral thing, Sparks argues, is to not be honest with you about the Bible. Well, of course, 
there are many implications to this. But one of them is that the, there's this notion that the scholarly community alone can understand the Bible. This is much like what Martin Luther found in the 16th century when he was dealing with the, the Church of Rome. You see, the Roman Church had always taught that it was only the Church that could tell you what you could believe. It was known as the Magisterium. Well, what we have now in evangelicalism is truly an academic evangelical magisterium that says we alone know the Bible. You as the rank-and-file believers can't know it. But there are other implications here. The, the tragic arrogance, this inordinate confidence that many in this evangelical world have in their own intellectual competency and have falsely concluded that this critical scholarship is undeniable. It is ultimately a form, as God would say, and it does repeatedly in His Word, that if His people do not really truly believe His Word and trust in someone else's words, that they are a people guilty of spiritual adultery. what the claims of modern scholarship in the evangelical community would have us believe that we can be faithful to our spouse theologically and sleep with the enemy at the same time. There are, of course, tremendous implications if that is really the case. If you as a Christian in the church or perhaps you're here and you are not one who understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if this book is not true, we are all wasting our time. What I want to investigate now for the remainder of our time is what does God's Word say about itself? Can we trust God at His Word? You see, it will not do to lead the church to proclaim the gospel if we do not have an accurate, truthful, reliable message to proclaim. One of the primary ways in which this evangelical scholarly community is seeking to drive a wedge in our trust of the Bible is this way. They would want to claim that God is truth, that His character is reliable, that He as God is perfect. He is without flaw. He is without error. But the Bible is to be distinguished from the character of God. God is true, but His Bible is full of errors. Will the Scriptures themselves uphold that sort of wedge? That is what we want to engage tonight. You see, our generation is not the first generation to be threatened with doubt about the Word of God. Indeed, not even the 19th and 20th centuries were the first generations of people to be threatened in their view of God's Word. I want to turn your attention tonight to the first century, to a people who were tempted to disbelieve the Word of God. Is God's Word truly reliable? If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. 
Actually, by way of introduction, we will be looking actually at a text in Hebrews chapter 6, but I want to first turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. The author of Hebrews, as he writes as he's carried along, as Peter puts it, by the Holy Spirit of God, points us to a dominant theme through the book of Hebrews in these very opening verses. The God of the Bible is a speaking God. He is a God who has spoken in ages past through the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken consummately and ultimately in His very own Son. You see, the pages of Scripture reveal God as a God who speaks, a God who communicates, and the prophets were the instruments through which the communication, the revelation of God has come. In the first century, there was the net effect, if you will, of persecution, of dispersion that was on the minds and hearts of God's people. And they were wondering in view of the fact that Jesus Christ had come and yet they were still suffering. They were wondering, can God's Word really be trusted? If Jesus has already come, why am I still suffering? And to those in the wilderness, if you will, or to change the metaphor a bit, to those who are tossed to and fro by the turbulent seas of change and challenge, the author of Hebrews throughout his book points them to the speaking God. And I want to turn our attention now to Hebrews chapter 6. If you look at Hebrews chapter 6, let me read verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Now I want to turn your attention. This is really breaks down into two particular sections, verses 13 through 16 and then 17 through 20. Look at verses 13 through 16 with me for just a moment. What the author of Hebrews does is reminds God's people to the promise that God made to Abraham. We see that promise articulated in verse 14. God here employs words to convey his will and his purpose to Abraham. But why is this word to be trusted? Well, look what we see in verses 13 and 16. We see that God swore by himself. Why did he swear by himself? He swore by himself because there is none greater by which he might swear. Immediately linked here, then, is not only the promise, but the promise to the person. God himself links the reliability of the promise to his very own character. You see, the character of God's promise is directly connected to the character of the one promising. There is an inviolable connection between the character of the promisor and the character of the promise. The reason that this promise not only can be trusted, but must be trusted, is because of the one who made it. Well, we see then in verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So we see the promise given, the promise linked to the person, and then God's faithful performance because the thing that God promised, God gave to Abraham just as he said he would. The author of Hebrews is pointing the first century wandering people, the wandering and wondering people, to the inviolable reliability of his promise as attested by their forefather, Abraham. God's word was the anchor. God's word in verses 17 through 20 is also not only the anchor for the past, but the anchor for today. Look in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now notice again, we have a promise stated again. Now the author of Hebrews here does not give us a clear reference to what that specific oath was. There is not a clear line to what that promise or oath is referring to. But what is abundantly clear is that the reliability of the oath is connected to the person who gives it. Look in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the set, the hope set before us. Now it is most likely that this particular oath is referring to the promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when it was promised to David that his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. And we see that fulfilled in the person 
of Jesus Christ. But the point that I want you to see here tonight is that the purpose of God is directly related to His promise, which is directly related to His person. His purpose is unchangeable because He is unchangeable. His promise is unchangeable because He is unchangeable. And the author of Hebrews goes well over and beyond to make his point. He, he issues the phrase that it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie, therefore His promise must be true. There is again in this particular verse a reiteration of the notion that the character of the oath, the character of the promise is connected to the God who promises it. It is an unchangeable promise because He is an unchangeable God. Now in consistency with the argument of Hebrews that we read in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. You remember we heard in days past, days long ago, God spoke through His prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son. The author of Hebrews picks up on that again in verse 19. You see, the word of promise fulfilled comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Notice, God has promised. He's linked the promise to His person. And the promise related to His per person creates an inviolably true performance. The God who promises is unchangeable. He will do what He says He will do, and His Word is to be trusted because His Word is His Word. We cannot draw a wedge between the character of God and the nature of His Word. Now I want you to see the goal of all of this. Look back at verse 18. The second half of the verse. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Emphatic here in verse 18 is the language that we might have strong encouragement. You see, Hebrews here is pointing to us today, the readers today, to have faith in the promises of God, to have faith in the very Word of God, just as God promised to Abraham, just as God promised to the heirs of the promise that was given to Abraham, that was given to David. Those people of faith are to trust in God's Word. Why? Because God cannot deny Himself. And His Word bears His character. The anchor of our soul, as the author of Hebrews puts it here, is rooted in the word and character of God. You see, the people of the first century were displaced. They were distressed. They were homeless. They were hapless. But they were not hopeless. Because the God of heaven promised. And in the midst 
of their diaspora doubt, if you will, as they were dispersed everywhere, they were turned in their attention to the unchangeable purpose of God and His Word so that they might have certainty and full confidence. I just want to turn your attention by way of illustration to one other text. Look over at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. By way of introduction to this particular text, I want to kind of flesh this out in terms of the day and age in which we live. Most of us in the evangelical community find ourselves longing for some sort of experience of God. We want to experience God. We want to hang our hat and our confidence based on something we feel or something that we experience. I want you to note that the author of Hebrews does not point God's people back to their experience. He points them to the very purpose and promise of God. Now listen to what Peter describes here in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Now let's stop there just for a minute. What Peter's talking about here is that famous text in the Gospels of the Mount of Transfiguration in which a small group of the disciples are witnessing the transfiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ. They see His glory. They hear the voice from heaven of the Father declaring declaring His pleasure in His beloved Son. Now I would just suggest to you that on the totem pole of experiences. That's up there. That's a pretty amazing experience. I want you to imagine that you are on that mountain and you are seeing the, right before your very eyes the Lord Jesus transfigured and you hear in your ears the very voice from heaven of God speaking about His beloved Son. That's a cool experience. Look what Peter says next in verse 19. And we have something more sure. More sure than that experience. The prophetic word. Notice that the Peter himself, the man who experienced the greatest of all experiences, says that is not the place to go when I am looking for assurance and stability and full confidence. It is to go to the prophetic word. Why? Because the word that the prophet spoke was God's word. And God's word is to be trusted because it is His word and is rooted in His character. It is rooted in His purpose. There is an inviolable connection between the character of God and the character of His Word. People of God, are you looking for experiences? Or are you finding the anchor of your soul 
in the very revelation of God. You see, God's purpose and His promise are anchored to His character. God's Word is anchored to His person. And we, as God's people, are anchored by His Word. The scholarly, evangelically speaking community that is moving in this direction of questioning the nature of God's Word is leaving many people in a heap of doubt. But I would suggest to you that the God of heaven has not stuttered. He has spoken clearly, and He is to be trusted. Let me illustrate finally with this. Many of you know John Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. Christian's neighbor named Pliable asked Christian if the Bible is certainly true. Christian responds this way, Yes, verily, for it was made by him that cannot lie. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. What I want you to know from your, our time together with you this weekend is that God is a God of truth. He will not deny Himself because He cannot lie. And His Word not only can be trusted, but it must be be trusted because the God of heaven is the God who has spoken and the anchor of your soul in the chaos and turmoil of life indeed if you hear even in the church of Jesus Christ doubts or uncertainty cast upon the word of God go back to the word itself and there you will find an anchor for your soul. There you will find the very Word of God.